Sponsor StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. This episode of Day 2 Cloud is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for all you amazing Day 2 Cloud listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash Day 2 Cloud and use promo code CLOUD at checkout to save 30% off all plans. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We got a we got a huggy, touchy-feely show today. How infrastructure as code should feel. All right, it's not really a touchy-feely show, but I just, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to say that. Uh, we, we are this show is with George Richardson. George is with the Scale Factory, and he he'll introduce himself in a little bit, but he wrote this article, How Infrastructure as Code Should Feel. Meaning if it doesn't feel this way, you're probably doing it wrong. Isn't that right, Ned? Yeah, maybe not necessarily doing it wrong, but you need to reevaluate your approach for what makes sense for your organization, your processes, the infrastructure you're trying to support, maybe the languages you're most familiar with. There's a lot that goes into implementing IAC correctly. And I think George gives us a lot of signposts on the way to accomplishing that goal. So enjoy this conversation with George Richardson, a consultant at The Scale Factory. George, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. If you would, tell the nice people who you are and what you do. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm an engineer. I spent a good portion of the last six years of my life staring at infrastructure as code. Uh, If you can't tell from my accent already, I'm from the UK, based in London, uh, and I currently work as a consultant at The Scale Factory, which is the only AWS consulting partner focused exclusively on the needs of SaaS businesses. I help SaaS companies unlock their potential on AWS. And the Scale Factory, do you, do you guys service just the UK area or you, or Europe or global? Europe mostly. Um, so we're kind of expanding out to Europe. Um, we've historically just been UK-based, um, but we're slowly expanding. The goal is to be the leading global uh, SaaS-focused uh, AWS consultancy, but uh, we're starting with Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Big ambitions, all right. Well, George, uh, the reason you're on the show today is this blog post you wrote on the Scale Factory site where you talk about how infrastructure as code should feel. And I saw that title. I think it popped up on Hacker News. And I was like, how it should feel? Like, are we going to hug the infrastructure as code? What do we mean? How should it feel? And then I read the piece and it was just, I, I really got a lot out of it. So, okay. So let me pull a quote from this article, George, and I want, because I want to get your your take on it and explain explain yourself a bit more. You say, infrastructure as code is a practice I feel, I really feel should be implemented everywhere it is relevant. Okay, now there are some people that are listening to this going, nope, nope, don't want to do infrastructure as code. I've been doing infrastructure as not code for a long time. So, so justify that statement that IAC should be implemented everywhere it's relevant. Well, I guess the word relevant is doing some pretty heavy lifting there. Uh, I'm not some kind of weird infrastructure as code maximalist who thinks you should only interact with your cloud provider through some kind of infrastructure as code tool. There are obviously places where it doesn't make sense. If you're just doing some experimentation uh, or using like a a batteries included platform as a service, then yeah, maybe it's not for you. And on top of that, change is hard, right? Like you said, 
if you have a giant cloud estate with a reliable change management process, then it's not going to be worth your time taking three months to just kind of convert, migrate everything into infrastructure as code. Um, however, it is useful, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it. If you are one of these giant, uh, have one of these giant cloud estates, then maybe you start small. You start with like a green, new greenfield project, or you start doing something kind of like the strangler pan, where you're taking small parts of it and, and migrating over to infrastructure as code. Because of, of course, it has so many benefits. I mean, if you if you find yourself deploying things that look like uh, the same thing over and over again, maybe you have multiple environments, maybe you have a single tenant application that you need to deploy just the exact same thing every single time. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure's code is going to save you so much time. When you have that kind of reusability, making updates to several uh, deployments or several hundred tenants all at the same time becomes much, much easier. When you're, and when we're talking about making updates, doing that kind of change management, uh, if you're like a software house, you can start using same kind of review tools like code review, pull, requ pull requests, everything like that, that you, you're used to making, you already do, but just applying it to your infrastructure. Uh, yeah, and some of that terminology can can be new to the IT ops folks side of the house who who are uh, pull requests, what is that? But <laughs> yeah, I think we'll, we'll definitely go through some of the, the benefits that surround following that, that kind of workflow. Uh, you, you, you did, you definitely harped on the portion of the quote that I thought was interesting, which is where it's relevant. Mm. And I, I totally get behind that. I can see how it'd be extremely relevant with what you're doing. A lot of SaaS companies are doing a multi-tenant infrastructure where they do have to just stamp out all the tenants the same way each time. And if you have 5,000 tenants and need to make an update, you don't want to do that manually. <laughs> right, exactly. You want to do that in a way that that's safe. And that's one of the things you pulled out here is one of the ways that IAC should feel is safe. So can you tell me, what do you mean by IAC feeling safe versus unsafe? So safety is all about knowing what's going to happen, right? You don't want to be in a position where you make a change and stuff breaks. And infrastructure as code tools mostly have a concept of like the plan or a change set where you can make a code change, run a plan, see exactly what changes it's going to make to your to your resources, your cloud resources, before it actually goes and makes those changes. And not only can you see what are the changes it's going to make on the resources you're specifically changing, but also the knock-on effects. If it doesn't need to redeploy something because you know it, it's tightly coupled to the resource you're actually changing. On top of that, you get you can get built-in validation, right? You can, because it's code, you can add your own validation rules a lot of the time. And you also get validation on things like you're attempting to, let's say we're talking about AWS and you need to change an AMI, right? You can actually query your cloud service and see that AMI exists before you make any changes. And then finally, safety is like, can I roll back? If something does break and stuff can obviously break, even with infrastructure as code, it's not a panacea. You can roll back, if you're using version control, you can roll back to the previous commit and, and immediately like take it back to the state it was when it was working and then work out what went wrong. Okay, so yeah, we covered a lot of ground there. Um, and I, I wanna pick out one thing because it was something I saw in the post as well. And it's this idea of how tightly your infrastructure is coupled to the application. And because that's something that I've definitely struggled with in the past is what portion of the infrastructure is sort of the base layer and which, which parts should be with the rest of the application code? So how do you build that differentiation between the two? So I think you, you got to think about it in terms of interfaces, right? What you don't want to do is have like 
have be in a position where your application needs to know how your infrastructure was deployed. You don't want to have, you don't want to be pulling out outputs directly from Terraform. You don't want to be reading uh, outputs directly from like CloudFormation stack sets and stuff like that. Uh, why? Because when you want to go and refactor your infrastructure's code, then you're not going to be able, you're going to have to change your application. That's that's a coupling. So what you need is an, you need an interface between the two, between your application, between your infrastructure. So you can use services like uh, SSM Parameter Store in AWS, or I think it's called Keyvault in Azure, where you can just kind of save your infrastructure details, the things that you care about, that your application is going to use, and then your application has one place to look and one name to look for. And if you do change stuff in the infrastructure's code side, it's not going to affect your application. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. So if I change something about my infrastructure, it's going to update some values in my Terraform outputs. And if my application is pulling those outputs or those outputs disappear, my application could break. Yeah. But if, I, if I'm going to just put some values in a, in a key value store that my application is going to use, as long as I make sure that those keys and values either remain the same or are updated in a way my application expects, I'm good to go. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can, it doesn't have to be like SM Prem store. Obviously, this could be a database, it could be DynamoDB, or you could even go further and use something like service discovery tools like uh, Cloud Map. Okay. Yeah. I mean, something dynamic is always, always nice because my infrastructure is going to evolve, but I am making some level of promise to the application team that these things will be available in a format you expect. And I can, Whatever I do in the background is fine as long as those values still remain the promises I'm making to the application team. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, George, another point you made about IAC feeling safe is testing. You talked about uh, making sure that testing your code is going to reveal what it will do. You understand what it's going to do. Therefore, it will feel safe. So uh, my background is primarily network engineering. Okay, knowing how the protocols work as an engineer and therefore making a configuration change on a device by hand, like back in the olden days at a CLI and stuff, we would go, okay, if I make this spanning tree change, it's going to change spanning tree, which will cause a disturbance in the force. It's going to take a little bit for SDP to reconverge and it's not going to forward packets for a little bit. That's a thing, you know, and you'd have to kind of know that that's, you know, what was going to happen. And so your change, the code that you were writing to reconfigure a device or a group of devices relied heavily on engineer specialized knowledge for it to have that safe feeling. So that's one component. How do we map that sort of domain specific knowledge about what's happening into uh, infrastructure as code when we do our testing of that code? But also, uh, again, from that network engineering perspective, we wouldn't assume that the configuration change we punched in did the thing we wanted. We verified the result with a bunch of different, in the Cisco case, let's say, show commands that would demonstrate that a routing adjacency came up or whatever it was that we were configuring actually happened the way we thought it was going to happen. So going now to bring all this back around, when you say IAC is safe, George, or should feel safe, um, how do we test and then how do we do is, is verification of the result after the IAC has run also part of that safe feeling? Absolutely. First point is you can't replace experience, right? Just because you're writing infrastructure as code, maybe you're doing it in JavaScript, you're using CDK or something. Just because you know JavaScript doesn't mean you know the cloud. 
yeah mm. if you're making changes to cloud infrastructure you need to have a kind of a basic idea of how how it all fits together and to your second point about about testing yeah i mean you, there's you need to have tests a lot of the time you can probably rely on your application tests if you have end-to-end -end tests already as long as you can deploy a development environment or a test environment that's going to test your infrastructure's code and it's not going to affect maybe other teams that you have, which is really easy when you have infrastructure's code because bringing up a new environment is just like, you know, on one command, bring it up, run some tests. Then you add, start adding in automation. So you've got your, you're making a change to your, your infrastructure's code. It's going to go through uh, your CICD system. It's going to bring up a new environment. It's going to run your tests. It's going to check that everything worked correctly. It's going to bring down the environment, and you can obviously add on other other tools like static analysis tools like Chekhov, which is going to do some, uh, some checks on the code, but not necessarily functionality tests when it's actually deployed. Yeah, bringing up a development environment of some sort or a parallel environment to your production environment and then running the test makes a lot of sense in the cloud, and that's something we old guys that had hands on bare metal for all those years kind of forget because we build our lab environments, but they were never the same as the production environments. So you could run a test, but there'd be anywhere from subtle to significant differences between that test environment and what the prod environment actually was. And so you would do the test and you'd say, yeah, we ran the test and it was fine. But with this doubt in your mind that ah, if we do the same code in production, it's not exactly the same thing. So how is, is it going to behave differently? Well, in this environment with cloud, you really can bring up like-like and get a much more predictable result and more confidence that when you run that test on that dev environment, it will behave the same in production. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's another layer you can add to that. With this concept of like plans and change sets, you can empower your engineers to be able to run plans all the way out to production, even if they can't do a deploy. So they can see that the changes they're making on like the test environment and that would actually result in the exact same changes in the production environment. They could be pretty, pretty sure that there's been no like manual changes in the in the meantime that might that might change the result. One more follow-up question I gotta ask you. You mentioned Chekhov earlier as um some kind of a sanity checker. And I don't think I've heard of that tool before. Ned, maybe you have, but it was a new one on me. Could you talk about that just briefly? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a static analysis tool. It will it will basically read many different types of infrastructure as code in CloudFormation, SAM, Terraform, things like that, uh, and, and uh, check it against different policies. You can write your own policies. There's like there's over a thousand, I think, built into Chekhov. Things like you know, make sure you don't have uh, a security group that's wide open to uh, to the the world and let anybody in. Um, and it, you don't need to deploy your your infrastructure to actually run these tests. It's just reading the code and, and checking that everything that you've written makes sense. Yeah, I, I've used it uh, for various projects and it has a lot of policies in there and some of which you may not agree with. So it does also have a way that you can ignore certain policies and just say, oh, in this case, it's fine. I'm, I want my S3 pub, uh, bucket to be public because this is a website. <laughs> <And> people, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Stop a, lot of, me. <laughs> a lot of the time when you're saying I'm checking off for the first time, it is going to be, what don't I agree with Chekhov on <laughs> rather than what extra can I add? Right. And it's going to be like, you know, 30 things that you're in violation of. And you're like, oh, what's wrong with my infrastructure? Nothing. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the another tool, because that's a static analysis one, um, another tool that will actually bring up that sort of parallel environment and test is called TerraTest. And that uses Terraform, but there's similar tools for, uh, for other languages. And essentially, it spins up a temporary environment for you, runs through a series of tests that you write and go. 
validates that your environment looks the way it should and then destroys the whole environment as part of one workflow. So it's it's kind of a, a closed loop test. Nice. Yeah, it's very nice. There's, a, there's actually uh, for Terraform, uh, it's an experimental load at the moment, but there's now the Terraform test command, which can do kind of some uh, infrastructure deployed tests um, for you. It's it's not really there yet, but hopefully they, they expand on it. <laughs> I played around with it a little bit and uh, I have it on good word that they're revising it heavily. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wouldn't tell me how, but it's definitely, it's in process. Now, one of the problems that I've run into in the past is ideally my changes are all going to happen in infrastructure as code. That should be my source of truth. That tells me how things should be. But that breaks down if there's folks who have access to the console or the CLI that can make changes outside of that. <laughs> Why is that bad and what can you do uh, to combat that, George? Well, it's, it's bad because you're going to end up doing stuff twice, right? Mm. If, you're, if you have something managed by infrastructure as code, you obviously just want to update it once. And if someone goes and manually makes a change, then that change then has to be reflected in your infrastructure as code. And now you've made the same change twice. So you're already wasting engineering time. In addition to that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break the plans, right? Like, like we mentioned before, your, if you do a plan on a dev environment, let's say, and it's suddenly there's, there's something that you don't expect there, that's going to be, for the person writing infrastructure as code, that's going to be, oh, alarm bells ringing. I need to go investigate that. I need to know what happened. Was this my change? Or has someone gone and manually changed something? And there you go. You've wasted more engineering effort. How do you stop it? Well, you just make it so people can't, can't make <laughs> manual changes, right? Lock it down at the uh, at the API level. If you're using AWS, lock it down. and Make a deny IAM policy on, on the resources that are under control uh, by infrastructure. That feels pretty draconian to take that step, George. Is that are you seeing that becoming standard practice in the shops you work with? Yeah, absolutely. And I wouldn't say it's draconian. I think it, you just need to incentivize people to start using infrastructure as code. Right? It's not about taking away. It's just about redirecting the effort. They can still make if they were allowed to make these changes before. They should still be allowed to make those changes, but they just have to make it in the code. Okay, so we're making differentiation on how they're actually interacting with the environments. Yeah. And yeah. The permissions that are assigned to the different ways to interact. So I might be able to go to the console and click around in a read only type of fashion. But if I want to make any actual changes, then I have to go through the IAC process and interact with it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and of course, sometimes it, depending on the tool you're using, this might require a little bit of extra automation that you may not have yet, um, mm. but it's well worth it. Right, right. Have you encountered any situations where there's a, a break glass option? So if something's really wrong, you can't, you don't have time to put it through the normal IAC workflow. Someone just needs to make a change in the console because things are hard down. Is there a break glass option or should the answer always be, no, you have to go through the IAC process? There's always going to be the break glass option, right? If if the, the production website is down and you're not making sales, then some and no, somebody knows how to fix it. You've got to let them fix it. But that needs to be a process that's well-defined and it is definitely a break glass. This is emergency only. Uh, so maybe you need to sign off, from, I don't know, an executive or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I run into that same issue with uh, with some interesting things with Azure Active Directory where 
you know, you accidentally locked out the only admin who had access to make changes and now no one can do it, but you had this one break glass account. <laughs> so that one doesn't have MFA installed or enabled for some reason, because if MFA is broken, which has happened with Azure AD, you still have that one account that you can get in and turn off MFA for others who need to get work done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. George, another point you made in your post was that complexity is the enemy of readable code. And I agree with that, but sometimes I need to do something really complex, George. So how can I get a complex task done while not winning an obfuscated code contest? Well, the, I guess the first thing would be don't obfuscate your code. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you're trying to do hard stuff, like, you know, use real well thought of names. You know, I know naming is like one of the hardest parts of software engineering, but thinking of a good name is well worth the effort, even if you have to sit there for 10 minutes and, and really, and really get a good one. Uh, in addition to that, if you're make if you have like let's say we're doing Terraform again, and you have a really complicated expression that's trying to make like a conditional resource, which is something that Terraform's not really good at, mm -hmm. maybe look at it. Think, am I am I holding the tool wrong? Take a step back. Um, am I doing this the way that Terraform wants me to do this? Because it's much easier to bend to the way the tool wants you to write your code than it is to bend the tool uh, to make your thing work, right? <laughs> it's always a good idea to comment, of course. If you do if you end up, hey, this is uh, this thing is complicated, right? Um, but I'm not holding the tool wrong, it's just complicated. Just write loads of comments. Make sure everybody who's gonna come back and read this code understands what you're trying to do. I've written code before where the, the comments are four or five times longer than the actual business logic. And it's just because I'm using heuristics, I'm doing, strange things that nobody usually sees. It's much better to have a, a well-written comment that explains what's going on so that when someone comes along later, they understand what was intended, even if they can't actually work out what it is you're doing by just reading the code. Uh, when I first started doing programming in college, one of the things they had you do was write your comments before your code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you can actually, yeah, I mean, you can that further, right? Test-driven development. That's, if you're doing something really, really complicated, write some tests, make sure they pass, and then the next person, when they change it, they can make sure those same tests pass and you haven't broken anything. Right, right, right. Uh, you, you mentioned naming, and I want to come back to that because I think that's something people get wrong. And I don't know if it's a matter of, of laziness or they just don't think uh, you know, further into the future of other people or even themselves in six months, which is effectively a stranger as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> looking at that code. So what, what sort of recommendations do you have around naming inside the, the IAC? Name things for their purpose and not for their resource type. If you have a security group called security group, then it doesn't really mean anything, <laughs> right? So it should be something like, you know, web that lets in port 443 and port 80. Um, things like databases, you can have, if you have multiple data, databases in your application, don't call something database, call something my, I don't know, customer database or something like that, right? And you can take yeah. that all the way out. So if, you, if you're defining like modules, make sure you're naming it about the purpose of the thing that you're deploying and not the things that you're deploying. <laughs> you, you end up with programmatic expressions that uh, explain themselves as you, as you read through them. If you're carefully naming things in, in the way that you describe, George, you can kind of look at a line and go, oh, I... Think I know exactly what that's doing, and of course you have to assume that uh, or hope that whoever named the object 
did name it in a way that is accurate, not leading you astray. But yeah, the code is much more readable, uh, readable that way. And a lot of the time when, when you're using these tools, the, the, the type of the resource that you're deploying is going to be there wherever you see the name anyway. If, you write, if you're reading a Terraform plan, the type of the, of the resource is part of the full name of the resource. So you're just repeating yourself and you're making it longer <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. yeah. Now, is it possible, George, that with the complexity problem, sometimes we maybe shouldn't be using the tool that we're using. And if we use a different tool, we can reduce complexity because this other tool, it's not that we're holding the tool right or wrong. It's that we're holding the wrong tool and, uh, and life's better if we move to something else. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, like Terraform has real problems with like conditional uh, resource deployments. So if you have like a highly configurable module that you need to deploy, then you're not going to get very far with Terraform without having a lot of weird obfuscated looking code where you're trying to reference conditional stuff. So at that point, why not use a different tool like use CDK where you can use uh, like the, an imperative language, which allows that kind of conditional control flow to create your infrastructure's code. Now, do we end up with more complexity because we're introducing more tools to our stack? Like, oh, we're using Terraform over here, but we're using you know, CDK over here. Yeah, I know. I think it's it's something you want to slice and dice very carefully. I, I've often found that Terraform is really great because it's declarative for the really like low low level, not going to change much stuff. Whereas if the, as you're getting closer to your application layer, maybe you're using something like SAM uh, or serverless framework, then you can start bring, kind of sprinkling a bit more of imperative stuff where uh, or, or different tools where um, where it makes sense. And in theory, you might be moving closer to the application developers themselves who are also using probably some kind of imperative language to write their application. So maybe you meet in the middle in a nice kind of way. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, so infrastructure's code is kind of, it's an enabler, right? It enables these, uh, your stream aligned teams, the, your application developers to potentially go in and change their infrastructure. And so if it's already using a language that they're familiar with, that makes that, that process easier. We pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsor StrongDM's Secure Infrastructure Access Platform. And if those words are meaningless, StrongDM goes like this. You know how managing servers, network gear, cloud VPCs, databases, and so on, it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in PuTTY and in super secure spreadsheets and SSH keys on thumb drives and that one doc in SharePoint you can never remember where it is? It sucks, right? StrongDM makes all that nasty mess go away. Install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the strong DM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage, but it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. 
Strong DM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packet pushers. They suggested we say no BS. And if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work. Strongdm.com slash packet pushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime strongdm.com slash packet pushers. And now back to the podcast. Well, uh, George, I think we've danced around it a little bit. And it's the fact that IAC is great, but you probably want to introduce some other things, other tools, something like CICD. So um, what are the benefits that adding IAC to a CICD pipeline? what, What sort of benefits can we expect from doing that? Uh, well, it's going to make it's going to make things faster, generally speaking. And when we're when we're talking about, uh, you know, tenants, for example, like or we have hundred tenants, you don't want to be manually updating those every single time. If you make a tiny change, that's actually going to add up to. It, it takes more time to make that change to hundred tenants in IAC than it does to just go into the console and press hundred different buttons, right? So, by automating that, sticking in your CI/CD pipeline you're taking that burden off of the developer and while still giving them all of the benefits of infrastructure as code. Okay, so what would a typical workflow look like if you had that situation where you, you want to update 100 tenants, but you probably also want to do some testing ahead of time. So kind of walk me through what a typical workflow would be with this pipeline and my infrastructure. So generally speaking, I think you'd have, before even committing any code, you're, you want to have your person, your developer who's uh, who's making changes to infrastructure as code, you want them to have some kind of sandbox, like a counter environment, where they can, on the CLI, they can make the changes that they need. They can deploy them immediately. They don't have to check anything in. They can see kind of the, the changes that are going to go on. Then once they're committed, you're going you're gonna to automatically deploy it to a development environment. Um, and then you can run your automated testing, perhaps. Um, you can make sure, you know, as part of your CICD, you can do your static analysis, check off, et cetera. And then once everybody's happy with that, maybe you've, uh, you've gone in and you've, uh, you've run your actual end-to-end uh, application integration tests, uh, for example, then you can start promoting it to your testing. Okay, so it's a multi-stage situation and you might have some gates in there where somebody has to sign off or, or give an approval to say, yeah, this, this passed all the tests in dev, let's put this to a QA environment or something along those lines. Exactly. I want to back up all the way to the beginning of that process because you mentioned something important there, which is the idea of sort of a sandbox. And what you're doing in that sandbox, what you said was they may not even be using IAC in that sandbox directly. They might be running CLI commands or something along those lines. Why would they want to do that versus uh, just going directly to writing, you know, infrastructure as code? Well, so let's say that you're uh, you're implementing a a new service. that you've never you've never used before. You don't know really what the shape is of it yet, right? You wanna you wanna you're gonna wanna experiment. You're gonna wanna go into your console, uh, your web console, and just see how it all fits together, perhaps before you even write any a single line of infrastructure as code. It, uh, at least I find it easier to to model it that way, and then write the infrastructure as code to kind of codify it. And then also you want to separate if you want to have a sandbox environment, you want to separate uh, any change, any effect that your changes have on any other developers or any other teams. 
Right. Yeah. I, I kind of follow the same process where the first time I'm trying to set up any service or a new feature on a service, I will deploy that through the console or the UI and it'll take me through a nice wizard. And the thing that frustrates me more than anything else is the names they use in the wizard don't line up to the properties that are in the infrastructure as code. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely annoying. It's, 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 it's even at the API level sometimes, right? So the console, the web console for AWS and the, and the API from AWS just have different names and there's no reason for it. Right. Well, I think they're trying to give you a nice like human readable name for it or our friendly name when you're in the wizard, because that's that's the whole idea, right? But they could also like maybe in parentheses, give me the name of that property or attribute in, in the API. So when I get to that point, I'm not struggling to make that translation. Um, yeah. I, I ran into something today where, the, where even the name in the template language and the name in the API was a difference in capitalization and it wouldn't accept the improperly capitalized <laughs> properties. <laughs> Come on. Oh, that's infuriating. Oh. Yeah, and it's really hard to like find those things sometimes, right? Because you're just reading the word and it's like, that's the same word. <laughs> George, another thing you mentioned early on, you were talking about people uh, actually running infrastructure as code and you know, doing the execution of it. Uh, maybe it's part of the pipeline, but but a developer kicked it off. You said something to 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 that effect, which made me think about division of duties. So as you're working with your different clients, how, how does this settle out this division of duties where you've got someone that needs to build out what the infrastructure is code templating and so on are going to look like someone else that would maybe be actually standing things up and, you know, dealing with monitoring and stuff. And then the developer, well, I guess that's the question, George, which of the dev ops and DevOps roles how do you seeing those broken out when you get into infrastructure as code? I guess I see DevOps kind of, well, the, the ideal is, and, and what a lot of our uh, customers are, are kind of striving for, is that there is this, the DevOps role, right? It's the dev and the ops. It's in a single stream aligned team. Um, and maybe it's not every single individual on that team is able to do both roles, but there is that capability within each team and they can all, uh, like take a feature from infrastructure to front end and to back end and deliver it as one team. We do see a lot of uh, a lot of customers that have full on operations teams on top of that. Um, so this would be like a, like a platform team, let's say, mm. and they're providing the base the base level infrastructure that other teams are then building off of for their uh, for their services or however they have structured their uh, architecture. And there's a, there's a book called uh, Team Topologies by Matthew Skelton and Manuel Paish. And, and it talks about that there's kind of like four different teams, team structures, team, sorry, team types, the complicated subsystem team, the stream aligned team, the enabling team and the platform team. And I think you want to have a infrastructure as code kind of um, function in your stream aligned teams. But it's the enabling team and the platform team where you're going to see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. And in the enabling team, it may be doing things like uh, migrating legacy uh, services into infrastructure as code. And the platform mm -hmm. team, obviously, a lot of their a lot of their work is going to be infrastructure as code, building out that that base for everybody else. Right, right. The platform team that that's sort of the the group that's building maybe sort of a platform as a service or or the templates or modules or or whatever the abstraction is that can be consumed by those more product specific teams. I'm not, I don't remember all the nomenclature from, from that book. I, I'm 
kind of familiar with the team topologies thing, but what was the uh, that other team that you mentioned briefly that does the migrations? So it's not so it's called an enabling team. It's not necessarily just doing migrations, but it's uh, mm-hmm. you can think of it as like a kind of a DevOps vanguard, I guess, where there's, there's maybe there's a lot of of work you need to get to to provide value to your other stream aligned teams uh, to so they can get to the work they need to do. If there's any any like base work that's not part of like your your platform, maybe it's uh, could be migrating old stuff it could be creating new templates that other teams use but isn't you know fundamentally changing your platform then that might be something that you have doing uh something that you'd give to an enabling team which may even just be temporary uh it doesn't have to be like a permanent team okay okay that yeah okay that makes sense to me your enabling team is just it's trying to do some of the the difficult work that's not specific to any particular product or, or platform, but is necessary to get that stuff off the ground. Your enabling team, they come together, they assemble like Voltron, they get the work done, and then they disassemble back to their other teams when, when the work is complete. Yeah. I think the cool thing is they will do a handover at some point. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt the podcast for a minute here to talk about IT training. You remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline last year? It caught your attention, probably caught mine. There's a key thing here. Cybersecurity professionals are in demand to prevent that kind of thing, but there are not enough humans out there to fill all the positions. There's over 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a cybersecurity professional if you get some training, some online training. It is never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered for your training. They cover everything. CompTIA to Cisco to EC Council to Microsoft. They, they've got all of it, including the cloudy stuff. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. And, and the way they present the information, you know, some presenters are like, they're reading from the book and they're super boring. That is not IT Pro TV's format at all. They use engaging hosts. that They're going to present the information in a talk show format and really keep it interesting and they do it live. They, they're live every day. And then once they've recorded that live show, it goes studio to web in 24 hours. As you're digging through their website, looking for content, all the courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, job role. You can find what you're looking for without a lot of trouble. And then when you pick the thing and you're ready to go, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses, uh, either the live stuff or the on-demand stuff from anywhere in the world via whatever platform you like, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or there's apps on iOS or Android. Learn IT, pass your certs, and then get a great job, maybe in cybersecurity, with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash day2cloud for 30% off all plans. Use promo code cloud at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash day2cloud. Day2cloud is day, the number two, cloud, and then use promo code cloud at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash day2cloud and use promo code cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's get back to the podcast. George, the original notion of DevOps from some reading I've done was that developers would be able to consume infrastructure and not really have to deal with operations. That was sort of an idealized, I'm probably oversimplifying it too, but that seemed to be the big idea. But what you've just described with the uh, team topologies, the various different teams and their roles is 
deep specialization in bringing these platforms to life that a developer wouldn't have that knowledge and doesn't want that knowledge. Do you see in the organizations you work with that the developers do end up being the ones that consume everything that's been set up for them in the infrastructure as code? Is that part of what they do? Or are the developers still doing the thing, hey, I'm going to need some instances or some paths or whatever that does these things for my app and then wait for them to be set up for them? Some of those uh, it's kind of legacy um, notions where there is a development team and they're just, they ask for a platform, they get given the platform, they write some code and they deploy it, right? That, that's what happens. But it, it, with newer technologies like uh, like serverless stuff, that that line gets blurred, right? Um, mm. And I think you, you see, you start to see where developers start slowly, they, they're deploying their own infrastructure, very small bits at a time, and it's they kind of get used to it. And then they start taking on more and more responsibility for the infrastructure that they're, they're part of the application as well. Okay. Yeah. And I feel like to a certain degree, the developer teams get a little stretched thin because they're asked, you're going to stand up the infrastructure and you're going to write the application. Oh, and you're responsible for security. And you're also responsible for testing and like quality assurance and all that. And uh, I think having other teams that are responsible for at least portions of those uh, would probably be pretty useful. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't get rid of your security team, right? You can't trust <laughs> developers to um, to do everything like that. You still need review. Uh, the thing with infrastructure as code is that it, it allows them to write the code and then you can get someone from the security team to come in and, and, and give it an, a quick glance over and make sure that they're not making any mistakes. Right. A lot easier for them to scan the code than it would be for them to inspect all of the infrastructure uh, manually through a console or something along those lines. Exactly. In terms of the organizations that you've been working with, to what degree does the do the higher ups have to buy into the idea of infrastructure as code and sort of DevOps teams, or is this more of a from the bottom up uh, type? It, it bubbles up organically from from the teams that are trying to implement things. Uh, I'd say often it, it is it is led from the top. There's often a mandate for infrastructure as code these days. Um, okay. Yeah, um, which is surprising. I think that, um, it's seen, at least in some circles, as this is yeah, it, this is safer. This is better. We can do better change processes when we have infrastructure as code, and therefore it's it's desirable at a at a top level. Um, but having said that, yeah, uh, equally it can bubble up from the bottom because a lot of these tools they don't require um, any any change in, in in process necessarily. If you're do doing changes manually, you can use an infrastructure as code tool to make those changes and. It, potentially nobody would realize it can be quite transparent and then eventually someone hey looking over over the shoulder there what's that tool you, d you use to make that change it's hey it's terrible have a look at this and then you're like oh okay we can we can actually take this and we could use it and adopt it for the different teams right i mean the bulk of the tools that i've seen are either native to one of the cloud platforms so the tool itself is free or they're open source so the tool itself is free obviously when you get to any kind of scale there's usually a paid version, but yeah, if you're going to adopt this from the ground up, you don't have to go at, to your manager and ask for them to, to cut a PO or something to pay a huge license for this automation software. Exactly. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, that IAC could be driven from the top down. You're actually seeing that I'm going to guess uh, CTO's office typically. Yeah. Typically. Okay. Or, or even just engineering leads for like, 
So does that end up driving like a reorg inside where the IT team used to be like, like back in the day, IT teams were siloed. You got the storage people and the networking people and dev people and whatever aligned, uh, silos aligned with technology. Do you see as infrastructure as code takes over more automation that IT teams are being reorganized to better align with that objective? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not out of the ordinary these days to have a, a line on a, like a developer job description that is you need to have some experience with Terraform or some experience with infrastructure as code or some experience with cloud formation. So not not reorganizing the departments as such, like uh, you used to do this and we're changing your job description to have these other things. Now it's more like we are aligning across these skills that we think you need to have. And so if you're a developer rocking in with uh, with, with coding language is great, but uh, you also need to be able to have some familiarity. You're saying they're adding skill requirements are being added to their plates. Exactly, yeah. I, I don't think it's, um, I think most organizations are slowly kind of moving in, in this direction. Um, and so there may not be like, widespread changes for like uh, an organization that's quite old where they think, oh, we need the IAC. Like I said before, let's migrate everything to IAC. It's not like something you can do in a big bang, right? But it certainly when with newer development with greenfield projects, you're starting to see that IAC is kind of a, a default. So George, a good concluding question here. I mean, the whole point of your article was how IAC should feel. And if you feel this way, things are going well. Uh, IAC is, is, is good and you feel good. Well, if IAC doesn't feel good to me, what do you what do you recommend? How do I uh, how do I go from not feeling good about it to feeling good? So you need to identify your your friction points, right? Is it that uh, you you're not able to see the these plans? Do you not feel safe about running a deployment with IAC? And then make changes to your process so that, or, or even your your security model, so that that become safer, allow your developers to see the results of plans or production. Um, if it feels slow, you need to make sure you add more automation. Um, th there's a myriad things, myriad ways it could it, it could feel bad and you need to work out where where that friction point is and then kind of hone in on it. Um, it, it, it in addition, it might be that you're just using the wrong tool for you. Like I said before, maybe, maybe you've had experience with Terraform, which is very declarative and it doesn't like have have a good language construct for conditional resources. If that's the problem you're having, go look at different tools. Maybe you're a JavaScript shop and you have JavaScript on the front end, you have Node on the back end, and you have JavaScript in your in your build system. Why not use JavaScript for your IAC as well? Have a look at CDK or Pulumi or something like that. Now, George, you uh, you have a, a blog and GitHub and and so on. Let people know how they can follow you and connect with you. Uh, yeah, so check me out at gjhr.me. That's my uh, website. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn at George-Richardson, I think. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, George has got a GitHub as well. We've got the links to all of that in the show notes, which will be at packetpushers.net and day2cloud.io. Uh, George, thank you very much for joining us uh, to here today on Day2Cloud. Uh, very much appreciate your time. And uh, George, this was your first podcast, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, my first tech podcast, so I hope I, I didn't make a fool of myself. And thank you very much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> you started out nervous, but uh, but it, it was all good, man. It was all good. You're among, you're among friends here with uh, all the Day 2 Cloud nerds that are listening. And uh, hey, if you are one of those Day 2 Cloud nerds, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, 
Would you let Ned and I know? We will go find a guest, or maybe you are the guest, and do you want to come on the show and chat with us? By all means, we are on Twitter, at Day2CloudShow. Uh, Ned and I both monitor that account, or if you're just not a Twitter person, Ned's got a form. You can submit, nedinthecloud.com. That form is there, and let us know the things you want to hear about. A little housekeeping for you, the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, of which this show is one, has a weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Him is loaded with the very best stuff we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. Human Infrastructure Magazine is free, and I promise you, it doesn't suck. In fact, it was while doing research for the newsletter that I found George's article and turned it into this episode. Get the very next issue flown to your inbox on a satin pillow carried by angels by subscribing at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. We don't sell your info or use the dark web to spam you with garbage you didn't ask us for, so subscribe knowing that your privacy is respected. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.